Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. After my neighbor had his valve surgery, he became so weak he could barely get out of bed. Although he was weak prior to the surgery, He was walking, but when he was discharged after his surgery, he became weaker and was hospitalized two more times in the span of one month. After his second hospitalization post-surgery, as he lay in his bed, too weak to even walk to the bathroom, and had been eating minimally, he asked me if I thought he was going to get better. I lied to him. I've never lied to a patient, but he wasn't my patient. He was my friend and I lied to him because I wanted to give him that bit of hope if it could help him. Seeing him in bed without his bulky sweats and San Francisco 49ers gear, he had become so thin and almost unrecognizable. In the past, he would call me out if he thought I was lying, but he didn't this time. I lied to him because I loved him. He was 78 years old. His wife had died three years earlier, and he told me that when she died, he had aged 10 years. He spent most of his time in the garage. Literally, the TV would be blaring with his schedule of shows and games. He was even in there on holidays, and he drank a lot of beer every day. His drinking decreased only when he started to get sick. He had the garage door open all the time. And in a way, it welcomed people, whether or not he wanted to or not. He was even nice to the college students living on our block. They decorated for every single holiday, the inside and the outside of their house. If the garage door was open, I always went to talk with him or would say hello. But when his wife died, he had his garage door more closed than open. After his wife had passed, He gave me the code number to open his garage in case I didn't see him for a couple of days. He became slower with an undercurrent of sadness. He went to the doctor only once a year, and that was in December, his yearly checkup time. He had been sick for about a year prior to his doctor's appointment in December and was recommended to go to the emergency room after presenting to his doctor for his annual. Prior to that doctor's appointment in December, his legs swelled up with fluid. His belly seemed bigger. He seemed slower and more winded when walking short distances, and he had this cough. He stopped weeding his garden. He asked me about his health, and I told him multiple times that I felt he needed to see his doctor sooner and get his heart checked out, but he didn't. A couple weeks prior to his doctor's visit, We had been talking, and he told me he had thoughts of driving his car off the cliff into the water. He told me that he would never actually do it, but would have these passing thoughts. And he made me promise that I would never tell his daughters because he didn't want to worry them. 
I did end up telling his daughter because that's not a good thought to have. And she had said that even when he was younger, this would be a reoccurring joke with the family. That if he reached 75 years of age, this was something he was going to do. And he was 78. Knowing him, I felt sad for him. And I knew living was hard for him without his partner. I wasn't sure if he wanted to live anymore. He had told me in just random chit-chats for the past 11 years that he would never want anything aggressive done to keep him alive. He would jokingly yell, pull the plug, to his wife's disdain. When he was directly admitted to the hospital from his doctor's office in December 2020, they ran tests on him in the hospital and realized that he had a valvular issue and was recommended for surgery. He had been so weak for a long time going in, but to my surprise, the surgeon had thought he was a great candidate for the procedure. And to my greater surprise, my neighbor, the patient, agreed. My neighbor, my sweet and grumpy friend, never recovered from the surgery and hospitalizations. During his initial hospitalization, he developed a clot in his heart and was placed on blood thinners. After the surgery, he came home with 20 new medications when he had just been on two medications before. He had difficulty eating. He continued to lose weight. He tried to work with physical therapy twice a week. He became short of breath again and was admitted two more times before hospice was started. As he laid in bed, he told me that he wished he had never agreed to the surgery. He died at home, surrounded by his daughters and caregivers. I find this conversation with Dr. Diane Myers so important because I know that in the field of medicine, doctors offer patients futile and sometimes harmful treatments, not because we don't care, but because we do care. We have become afraid to talk about death. It may seem a little sadistic in retrospect, but offering the futile and simultaneously harmful and painful treatment could be an act of love a way in which to not abandon the patient. How many times in my career have I seen patients with metastatic cancer getting palliative chemotherapy recommended by their oncologist? Palliative chemotherapy is a treatment given in the non-curative setting to optimize symptom control to improve survival. But it doesn't improve survival, nor does it optimize symptom control. Chemotherapy is perhaps the harshest of drugs that I can think of, and ultimately the appropriate setting is required to prescribe it. You have to be strong to endure chemotherapy as it will make you weaker. Chemotherapy doesn't just target the fast-growing cancer cells. These drugs don't differentiate, and they kill healthy cells in your body as well. It makes me sad to see a man with metastatic pancreatic cancer who looked so weak and thin, barely able to get out of bed, and too weak to even talk, getting palliative chemotherapy. What are we doing? I brought it up with patients I've met in the hospital, but whom are they going to believe? Me, whom they've met just a minute ago, or their oncologist, whom they trust? If there is no cure, what will contribute to this man's quality of life? What can help with how he feels in the remainder of his life, instead of taking away what little physical or emotional strength he has? What will allow for him to attain some peace? 
In the practice of medicine, we have forgotten our foundations to relieve human suffering. Palliative care is generally seen as a subset of medicine that maintains the human side of medicine, when ironically, all fields of medicine should be aware of this. But our healthcare system is first and foremost a marketplace, and it's broken. Whereas palliative care addresses the physical, emotional, existential, and even spiritual concerns for the patient, the rest of the medical profession has been subsumed by the marketplace where the primary concern is reimbursement. In the example of my friend, I still wonder if surgery would have been recommended if perhaps his doctor or the surgeon knew him, or if they were aware of his patient autonomy. Maybe he agreed to this surgery because despite everything he said in his life, there came a point where he was afraid to die. Or maybe he wanted to live longer, or perhaps he went along with what the doctor recommended. Dr. Meyer in May 2011 wrote a commentary in the Archives of Internal Medicine when speaking about patient autonomy, that it provides patients with the opportunity to articulate their own values and goals for medical care so that their physician's recommendations can be based on the platform of this knowledge in the context of the physician's knowledge about the realistic burdens and benefits. Unfortunately, I don't think we think about this enough. There could have been another life my neighbor could have chosen. To optimize his medications, to decline the surgery, to have good control of any pain to prolong his life, so that he can drink his orange juice every morning with his coffee, have his toast, watch his football games on TV in the garage, talk to those he actually likes, and walk to his bed when he's ready. We live in a world now where doctors don't know their patients, and a lot of patients don't know their doctors. This crucial relationship is being sacrificed in the marketplace called medicine, and I think that's a huge price for all of us to pay. Dr. Diane Meyer is a founder and was a longtime director of the Center to Advance Palliative Care, a national organization devoted to increasing access to quality healthcare in the U.S. for people living with a serious illness. She has received numerous awards and was a 2008 recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, aka the MacArthur Genius Award. She was named one of the 20 people who make healthcare better in the United States by Health Leaders Media in 2010 and was elected to the National Academy of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences in 2013. Dr. Meyer has published more than 200 works in peer-reviewed medical literature. Her most recent book, Meeting the Needs of Older Adults with Serious Illness, Challenges and Opportunities in the Age of Health Reform, was published by Humana in 2014. Welcome to Lost or Found, Dr. Meyer. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. And before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a doctor. I'm a physician, a geriatrician by training that's focused on care of older people. And later in my career, I uh, became a palliative medicine physician as well. So I do both, and I lead a national organization called the Center to Advance Palliative Care, 
whose mission is to improve access to high quality palliative care for all people who are living with a serious illness and for those who care about them. How would you describe palliative care and how important is it as a concurrent experience, such as with like cancer treatment? So in the last, I'd say, 40 or 50 years, we've gotten really, really good at drilling down into individual organ systems and individual diseases. And that's very important to try to get control over many of illnesses that have plagued humankind since since for millennia. But what we seem to have forgotten in that zeal to gain control over disease and hopefully to cure more often to control, not cure um, diseases, is we've forgotten about the experience of the patient who is living with that illness or illnesses. And that used to be the only thing that doctors could do was give morphine, was comfort. Um, There wasn't much we could do about common diseases. Now that there's a lot that we can do about common diseases, we've forgotten our foundations in terms of our obligation to relieve suffering, human suffering. And that, that forgetting carries a lot of cost for the patients themselves, especially for their loved ones, whether it's their family or their friends or the people that care for them. Witnessing the suffering of someone you love is incredibly painful and distressing. So it's not just the patient who might be in pain or might be short of breath or might be depressed. It's everyone around them sharing that experience. So the field of palliative care, which began really only about 20 years ago in the United States, aims to restore that balance. Obviously, we should cure when we can. Most of the time we can't, but when we can cure, we should cure. We should modify or control disease when we can and prolong life when we can. But at the same time, we should pay attention to whether those added years are worth having, right? It is of marginal value to prolong someone's life who's in excruciating pain all the time. And this notion that somehow we have to choose between life prolongation and symptom relief is a myth. In fact, people who have a very high degree of symptom burden, whether it's pain or shortness of breath or restlessness, actually die sooner because of the stress of the suffering that it adds to your system. So in fact, the the science, the literature shows that good control of pain and other symptoms actually prolongs life because the patient is less stressed than makes sense, right? And the family is less stressed. So that understanding is what we are trying to spread around the country um, to all clinicians, cardiologists, oncologists, nephrologists, neurologists, clinicians who take care of people living with long-term serious illnesses, that it is not just their obligation to try to control that Parkinson's or to control that uh, need for dialysis. It is also our obligation to assess people for common sources of suffering and to have the skill and knowledge to be able to address them. 
And that is not currently the case. We're working. I absolutely agree with you. And I love how you described it, you know, like, I think medicine has made amazing progress with like the subset specialties that we have now and diseases. But ironically, I think we've almost forgotten like the bigger picture, as you say, like humanity, our spirit. And, you know, why is symptom relief or prolonging life so separate from one another when really it goes hand in hand with our survival and our humanity? I think that's what's being forgotten. Exactly. And what's fascinating is that as palliative care has grown in the United States, and particularly in teaching hospitals, you know, where the medical schools are, where the residencies are, where the fellowship training is, we find, and as it becomes sort of normalized, right, if you went to a medical school and did a residency and did a fellowship in a hospital that has a palliative care team, you now think that's just the way it is. Of course, there's palliative care. Of course, it's important to relieve suffering because since I got into medicine, that was always there. 20 years ago, it wasn't there, you know, and yeah. so the what we're seeing is that in some ways, and this is good news, our colleagues take for granted that there's a team of experts who know how to safely manage pain, who know how to relieve shortness of breath, who know how to identify and treat a delirium. Um, or a depression, and who know how to have emotionally charged conversations with patients and families about the reality of their situation and to help them come to terms with it. And it's, especially during COVID, um, the reliance of the docs in the emergency department, the docs in the ICUs, the hospital medicine teams on their colleagues in palliative care to address the human suffering that was all around them. Or the human that's always been there, you know? Well, it's not that they didn't want to address it. They did. They didn't have time. Yeah, that's drowning. the problem. They were drowning. And, and so I think it is actually comforting to clinicians of all disciplines to know that there is a team whose job it is to address that. Yeah. That they can call that team and get help when they're, you know, painted into a corner where they're supposed to see one person every seven minutes and, you know, rush, 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 rush. It's really hard to help people under that kind of time pressure. Yeah. I think it's pretty amazing that with all the efficiencies and the effectiveness that medicine has attained, that, some of that human connection has been lost a little bit. And now we have palliative care teams to help out. But I think, isn't that first and foremost, the human that is in front of you? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the loss is not just to the patients and families who seek that kind of connection with all their clinicians um, and feel very grateful to them and very connected to them for their very lives. Mm -hmm. The clinicians are giving up a huge amount because the main satisfaction of the practice of medicine or working in healthcare is that human connection, that the privilege we have of these really profound relationships with the people who become our patients and our patients' loved ones. And when we are rushing from pillar to post and documenting in the electronic health record and looking at our watch every second to, because we're behind, we can't possibly um, privilege that experience. 
Definitely. Making a, a human connection with our patients. So not only does the patient lose, we clinicians lose as much or more. And then the ultimate question remains, are we helping anyone at that point if we're rushing, 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 right. and we may not be seeing or feeling? I love what you said in your um, in your viewpoint in JAMA 2016, where you noted that palliative care prolongs survival, and you mentioned it now, that it helps patients with cancer complete their course of treatment and live longer because findings suggest that the relief from pain, symptoms, stress of a serious illness and the prevention of their crises result in avoidable hospitalizations. I thought that was really profound. Well, when you think about, particularly in the case of cancer, but really any older person with a chronic disease, we know how dangerous hospitals are. Some scientists have argued that hospitals are the third leading cause of death in the United States because of all of the various medical errors and antibiotic-resistant infections that you pick up when you go into the hospital. And when you walk around a hospital, you can see how this happens. And the stress of being there, not sleeping. Yeah, the stress of being there. But, you know, if you count the number of separate individuals that walk into a patient's room in a 24-hour period, <laughs> yeah. something like 37 people, you know, and it seriously. And among that, there's like 12 different doctors. I mean, these people are not talking to each other. Yeah. It's, they don't have time. So in, in the case of cancer where patients are on chemotherapy or receiving radiation, they are immunocompromised, right? They don't have a healthy immune system. That's why it was so important for those patients to avoid COVID and to avoid places where COVID was around. But hospitals in general are dangerous for people who are immunosuppressed because they are full of resistant organisms, antibiotic resistant bugs. So if you have cancer and you have a pain crisis and it's three in the morning, when you call your doctor's office and you get a tape and the tape says, if this is a medical emergency, hang up now and call 911, you call 911 because you're in a pain crisis. So you have cancer. Um, you really, the last place you want to be is in the hospital, but it's the only game in town. It's the only option at three in the morning. So when a immunocompromised cancer patient ends up in the hospital, because no one knows how to prevent and manage their pain at home, and they catch a resistant bug, they die. Hospitals are just, you know, I wish they were safer. They're just not. And we really have an obligation to only use the hospital for people who actually need to be there, for people exactly. who cannot be met in the home. What percentage of families do you feel like understand how to treat pain from their doctors? Like, being, are they educated? Um, it, I think that we don't have data on that. Mm -hmm. so I can't answer a percentage number. I can say that the vast majority of physicians have not been trained to manage pain. And advanced practice providers, like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Um, the training is good if you do a palliative care fellowship. You know, if you do subspecialty training in palliative care, but outside of that, it is honored in the breach. People may get one hour in their total undergraduate medical education and none during their residency on the safe and effective use of opioids. And we wonder why there's an opioid crisis. We, we just don't teach it. And it's true. And we don't teach it. You know, I was trying to help a patient who was in a 
uh, not my hospital, but another hospital in New York City who was in excruciating pain. And the family somehow got to me through someone else. And I was trying to get help for that patient. It wasn't my hospital. Um, and, and there was there was an ethics consult service. There was a geriatric service. But no one had any training in opioid management. And the patient needed to be started on opioids. Mm-hmm. And no one did. No one would. And, you know, that's New York City in 2021. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's a couple of reasons. One is that the the mandates, the accreditation mandates for medical school and residency basically haven't changed in 40 years. Mm-hmm. So you can be a licensed and accredited medical school and not graduate people with any functional knowledge in pain management. And nothing happens if you don't. There's no consequences for that. So if it's not required, it doesn't happen. Number one. Number two, um, the same is true in residency. This is where you learn to be a pediatrician or a surgeon or an internal medicine doctor or, or an obstetrician. That training is controlled by what are called residency review committees, and they accredit these postgraduate training programs. And those residency review committees basically replicate how they were trained. And then they replicate how they were trained. So it's like nothing changes. Almost no new content gets in. <laughs> true. Um, and and it's so it and it's very difficult to influence that from the outside. So you have people who have a stake in doing things the way they know how to do them, the way they've always done them, because they know how to do that. And doing something new or different is hard and it's stressful. And it means you've got to do less of another thing if you're going to do more of this other thing. So even though if you ask the public, do they assume that doctors are well-trained in pain management? Do they assume that doctors are well-trained in communication during serious illness? They would say, of course, why are you even asking me that question? Of course, they're well-trained in that. They're not. (laughs) They're not. And, you know, the fault really does lie with the the medical education establishment that has not changed along with the needs of the population. Yes. And I feel like, you know, with pain, you bring up so many important points. I think pain is so part of the human experience. It's kind of like the gigantic elephant in the room. The elephant exists, yet we don't acknowledge it in medicine enough. Or even like, you know, even to address pain or understand what the patient's going through is sometimes in like the way medical care is administered because a lot of doctors learn having um, experienced or practiced. But not having enough time to see patients or constantly being rushed, that's another huge problem, I believe. Yeah, it's that. It's also that we are taught implicitly, but very powerfully, that a patient who is asking for pain medicine is a manipulative drug seeker. Every clinician gets the message that we can't take patients at their word. Um, that somehow that patient is manipulating us and trying to get something they shouldn't have. And it's just especially true if you're a person of color. And I just was reading a paper from a few years ago about appendicitis in children and opioid administration in 
children with painful appendicitis, you are three times less likely to get any opioid analgesic if you are a black child with appendicitis. Wow. Same diagnosis, mm -hmm. right? Children, what are we worried about? That we're going to create addicts out of these children with acute appendicitis? <laughs> it's just, it's appalling, but it's true. And all the data supports that. And if you read about the experience of sickle cell patients, for example, and we know that sickle cell disease is excruciatingly painful. Um, the cells sickle, uh, these red blood cells that are supposed to be a certain shape are deformed and they sickle and they block off the small vessels, the capillaries. Causing pain crises. Excruciating pain. And you, there are in the literature lots of interviews with patients who talk about when they're in a pain crisis, first they go home and put on a suit and tie before they go to the emergency room. The hopes that if they put on a suit and tie, they might get listened to. And I don't know, It's I find it shocking, embarrassing, shameful, uh, that we've lost our way. And the implicit bias that we all carry. And the fact that we have implicit bias is not the problem. The problem is that we don't acknowledge it and take responsibility yeah. for correcting our behavior. So the way I've started teaching the students and the house staff is to say, if you are walking into the room of a person who is a different color than you, any color that's different from you, you have to ask yourself, would I treat this person differently if they were white? What a great lesson. Yeah. Because once you bring it to consciousness, you become aware of your implicit bias. If you're not aware of it, there isn't a damn thing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. But if you bring it to consciousness, you have a choice. It's true. Like one of my friends was saying that, you know, you know, for African-American women who are pregnant, their rates of deaths are higher so my OBGYN friend was saying that whenever she has a black woman patient who's pregnant, she always treats that, that mother like a high risk patient. Yeah. And, you know, it's unclear. I mean, it is clear that implicit and explicit bias is a big part of those worse outcomes, you know, that we have not been trustworthy as a healthcare system that people don't trust us. Think about the stress of being pregnant or delivering in a place and with people you don't trust. It's true. So, you know, whether there are other pure medical physiologic reasons for higher rates of maternal and infant complications among people who aren't white, I don't, I doubt it. Mm -hmm. You know, my guess is it has much more to do with things that we don't measure. I think so. And, you know, I still, you know, with palliative care, like with our changing healthcare environment, I feel like palliative care still represents what's like good in our field. I've always loved, um, you know, like palliative care's philosophy of care, which is aimed at improving the patient and family experience and quality of life, regardless of the treatment outcome, which you wrote about, kind of like the mother in medicine. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And I actually think 
although there are many wonderful men in palliative medicine. So let me just say that, <laughs> that if you read the books on moral development in women versus men, um, there's a book called In a Different Voice by Carol Gilligan that mm -hmm. I recommend to you about um, the moral development of women being much more relational um, and less rule bound. So one of the examples in her book is asking men and women the same question. Um, a woman has, uh, I don't know, a, a severe medical problem and the pharmacy is closed. And the husband breaks into the pharmacy to get her medicines. What, what should happen? And men say, regardless of the wife's situation, that's illegal. Mm -hmm. He shouldn't have done that. He should go to jail. And the women say his, his reason for doing so, the protection and care of his very ill wife justified this. And he should be allowed to compensate the store owner in some mutually agreed upon manner. Different so, way of thinking. Yeah, different way of thinking. Rule bound, rigid, this is the rule, thou shalt not steal, um, versus thinking about the impact on the multitudes, mm -hmm. on the whole, the community. And um, palliative medicine exemplifies a lot of that because it, as a field, we pay attention to suffering everywhere in our colleagues of which there is a lot, in people around the patient, of which there is a lot, in the patient, and in our own teams. And this sort of recognition that that's our job, yeah. to pay attention to the consequences of this experience for everyone connected to it. And I love the, what you wrote, you know, in your um, in your past articles, regardless of the treatment outcome. I think having worked in medicine, sometimes with medical care in the hospital, once you you know deem that the patient that med, that the patient doesn't um, you know benefit from further medical treatment, sometimes it feels like you know you're passing the torch on to palliative care. Sometimes you know when care doesn't stop but palliative care embraces the patient no matter what the outcome. Right. And I, I think it's, again, here, I don't know if you read my paper. I don't want Jenny to mm -hmm. think of abandoning her um, in health affairs. Yeah. Because that was the story of an oncologist who was very attached to his patient, Jenny, who he had taken care of for six years with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, and as her disease was progressing and she knew being a smart person that this was, you know, she was getting worse and that treatments were less and less effective over time. She kept asking him what's going to happen when this treatment stops working. And he would respond, oh, don't be ridiculous. I have more things we can try. Mm -hmm. Because she was a clinical psychologist, she knew that the reason he was saying that is because he couldn't face the reality. But she wanted to face the reality because she was terrified of what her death was going to be like. And based on kind of the what you pick up in the zeitgeist, people are terrified of dying 
and they think it's associated with terrible pain and suffering. It's not. It's not, but that's what everyone thinks because, you know, we show that on TV and when we're legislating for legalization of aid and dying, we say you can either control the timing of your own death or suffer horribly, even though suffering horribly is actually the least likely thing to happen when people die. Um, so she, because she realized that he was emotionally incapable of confronting the truth, she found me on Google and came to see me at a completely different medical center. And all she wanted to know was what's it like to die? That was her question. Because she had a 21-year-old daughter and a husband. She didn't want them to witness her suffering because she knew that mm -hmm. would be devastating. She didn't want she was worried that she would suffocate because of the lung cancer. She was worried that she might bleed because of the locations of some of her metastases. She was worried that she might become agitated or out of control and that that would terrify them. And so I wanted to make sure that's what she really was interested in knowing. She and her husband were there. I said, so let me get this straight. You want to talk about what, what it's like to die? Yes, she says, you know. And so I said, most people get sleepier and sleepier, spend more and more time in a bed or chair, then more and more time in bed, then more and more time asleep and not interested in eating or drinking as their body is shutting down, and then eventually sink into a coma, deep sleep. Um, after a few days of that, their breathing becomes rapid, which is a normal manifestation of the body slowly shutting down. And that goes on for a couple of days. And then there are pauses in the breathing. So rapid breathing, pause, rapid breathing, pause. And those pauses can be quite long. They can be more than a minute. Um, and then the person starts breathing again. But during one of those pauses, you will die. And I said, 90% of people, nine out of 10 people, that's all they, that's what happens just weaker and sleepier until those steps occur in the one out of 10 who have symptoms like pain, like shortness of breath, like restlessness, we have very effective medicines that will be in your refrigerator with clear instructions that your husband and daughter can give you. So there will be no situation that can't be handled at any hour of the day or night at home. Now, how long did it take me to say that? Not too long. <laughs> yeah. Every patient wants to know that. Every patient is terrified. Our clinician avoidance of talking about it makes them think they have very good reason to be terrified. Mm -hmm. How do patients take it when you say that? They're relieved mm -hmm. because that's what they're afraid of. It gives them, you know, she, she had been like not sleeping because she was so worried about what it was going to be like to die. She lived another year and a half after that conversation. So much light, more light of heart. Mm -hmm. She wasn't afraid of the future. Knowing what's to come. And yeah. Yeah. She could live in the yeah. present moment. Exactly. Being able to acknowledge the now. Right. It's, it's not that patients aren't thinking about it. They are thinking about it. Yeah. And we don't have to force it on them, but we can ask them, do you want to know what, it, what the future is going to be like? Do you want to know what it's like to die? And they could say no. But they know they can ask you when they're ready. Right. That you're not going to run screaming yeah. in the opposite direction like most of us do. 
I think like that doctor that you mentioned, her original doctor, you know, I think the problem is sometimes in medicine and with our training and the way healthcare is right now, I think sometimes doctors see dying as like a failure. Exactly. And I think when you when you do that, you give such a disservice to our patients, you know, when it's not a failure, ultimately it's, it's life. It's yeah. one of the life cycles. Right. It's the human condition. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, and patients know that. It's us doctors who don't seem to know it. Patients know it. Um, but in that same story that was in that article, about 18 months after I first met Jenny, she called me to say she had been in to see her oncologist because her brain mets were getting worse. And she was kind of maxed out on steroids and maxed out on radiation therapy. And there didn't seem to be much that could be done to affect it, but it was making it hard for her to work. She was a clinical psychologist and she said she was having trouble remembering what people told her and she was wondering whether she needed to say goodbye to her patients. Mm. She went to see the oncologist and he offered her treatment, intrathecal chemotherapy, infusion of chemotherapy directly into the metastases in her brain through a reservoir. And she went home after that and called me and said, what do you think? So I thought that was an insane idea, but I didn't say that because I'm the consultant, not the primary physician. And I said, you know, Jenny, I'm really not familiar with the benefits of a treatment like that. Let me call your oncologist and ask him what he's hoping we can accomplish. And one of us will get back to you. So I called him. And I said, Jenny called me and said, you had recommended intrathecal chemotherapy for her brain mets. I'm really not familiar with the use of that procedure in this situation. What are you hoping we can accomplish for Jenny? And without a missing a beat, he said it won't help her. Right away, it won't help her. And then I, I was trying, tr struggling to figure out what to say remembered that I was the consultant. And I said, do you want me to encourage her to go ahead with it anyway? Mm -hmm. Because he's the doctor, I'm the consultant, right? And there was a long pause on the phone. It was probably five or six seconds, but it felt like an eternity. And he said, I don't want Jenny to think I'm abandoning her. <sighs> and that was really a profound experience for me because suddenly the behavior of so many of my colleagues made sense that that the offering of futile and often harmful treatments was an expression of love by doctors who felt really connected and loyal to their patients and literally had not had any training in other ways to walk with and stay with their patients other than infusions and that is not their fault that is the fault of the training. It's true. Sometimes it's like being a doctor. You just have to know when to put your stethoscope aside. And then like something that always like struck me is, so with some patients, like sometimes I wonder in my own head, like, are we prolonging suffering or are we prolonging life? That's the question. Yeah. And that, that really, that question cannot be answered by us, can only be answered by the patient or the people who love the patient because 
particularly young physicians, cannot imagine living life under the constraints imposed by a serious illness and think they would rather be dead. But that is reaction formation, right? Many people who, when they were 25, think they would rather be dead than, for example, live in a wheelchair. Um, when they get to the point where they have to live in a wheelchair, they would rather live in the wheelchair than be dead. So we have to be very careful about projecting our own fears of disability, cognitive or physical, um, or death onto our patients because it's not about them, it's about us. And I, you know, it takes a while to have practiced long enough to see this, but um, I've had many patients who were very, very clear that they would never want to be on a ventilator, they would never want a feeding tube, and then they got sick enough that that actually was the option. Most of the time they opted for the treatment. Yeah, fear. Well, it's not just fear. It's wanting to be alive, you know, yeah. just as you and I want to be alive. You know, it's it's that, it, as Bonnie Raitt sang, life gets mighty precious when there's less of it to waste. Mm -hmm. It's easy to make a hypothetical judgment when you're in good health that you yeah. would never want to live like that 40 years down the road. But remember that you're not the person in that body facing death and your opinion is actually irrelevant. Yeah. I think as, in the, as a doctor, I mean, I think our job is to understand our patients' values and goals, right? To help them make their informed decisions. Yeah. To understand that, to have those discussions. But if those discussions aren't helping, I mean, happening, I think that's part of the, one of the reasons why most people die in the hospital. Not like the patient that, that you described who sounds like she died at home. She did. Um, actually, only about 30% of people die in the hospital. It used to be much higher. It's now mm -hmm. substantially lower. And that has occurred ever since hospitals got paid through a DRG, through a lump sum payment per hospital stay, because hospitals have a very strong financial incentive to discharge people. Mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. Yes. And so that's exactly what we do, particularly if we are a full hospital with people stacked up in the emergency room. Um, so about 30 plus percent die in a nursing home and about the same number at home with hospice. Okay. At home on hospice, do, are they having enough resources? No, mm -hmm. because... We expect families to do the work of doctors and nurses. On yeah. So on hospice, you have 24-7 telephone access, but not 24-7 human access. Yeah. You don't have a professional in the house. So we actually expect, and families do, to their enormous credit, learn how to administer morphine and lorazepam mm -hmm. and Lopiridol and rectal suppositories and clean people. And it's a huge, a huge undertaking. For and it's and scary, it's, you know, it's very scary because you're afraid you're going to do something wrong. Yeah. Or cause harm. But that's the hospice model is built on the backs of families. 
in fact. Um, and, you know, some families have, you know, a strong, large family unit so they can help each other and be around. Some families have money so they can hire help. Um, and for some families, it's a real problem because they work or they've got children to take care of or, um, and we as a society don't pay for personal care. It's a shame because I know a family uh, whose family member was dying and they were so afraid to even give the morphine. Yeah. The droplets of morphine. Yeah. You know, the question was when, but they just, they were just so afraid that he didn't really get it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's unfair. It's unfair to the patient who presumably had some preventable suffering. And it's unfair to put untrained family members in a professional role that ordinarily you would have to be an RN to administer an opioid. (laughs) May I ask you? Yeah. Do you think healthcare is doing a good job at addressing patients' palliative care needs and delivery of palliative care then? Of course not. So the reasons are just as I was saying with um, honoring teaching of pain management and communication in the breach, the same is true of palliative care as, as a specialty service. It's not mandatory. In hospitals, nursing homes, or home care agencies, there's no requirement either for training or for an interdisciplinary team or for 24-7 access. So it's a nice to have, not a have to have. Hospitals that are strapped, hospitals that are for-profit, which is a growing number, aren't going to invest. No. And that has to change, and that is a political problem. Like, I love what you wrote. Like, ideally, we would hope that when someone's diagnosed with cancer, that you have a concurrent, like, palliative care team following, you know, to help treat with the pain and the symptoms, whatever the outcome. But that's not always the case. For majority of people, that is not the case. Right. It is true. There is one piece of good news, and that is that there's an organization called the Commission on Cancer, which is part of the American College of Surgeons for some reason. But the Commission on Cancer certifies cancer centers. And mm-hmm. if you want to be a Commission on Cancer certified cancer center, and everyone does, you have to have access to palliative care. That single decision on the part of the Commission on Cancer led to the most rapid growth in access to hospital palliative care in US history because everybody has a cancer center and everybody wanted that cancer center to be certified. So those those external requirements are hugely powerful and effective, but getting them done is there's a lot of pushback against requirements. So the American Hospital Association, for example, doesn't want any new hospital requirements and will fight to the death to prevent it. Mm -hmm. Even though they agree that palliative care is an essential element of quality in hospitals. They don't want to open the door to any new mandates. And the question ultimately is why, right? (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, like having worked in the hospital, you know, I think palliative care is so important because 
that's the opportunity of discussion that's brought into the patient. Because sometimes as doctors, with how busy it is, we're not talking enough, like as you mentioned. But it's an opportunity of discussion. It's so critical. But, you know, I'm concerned with like our current healthcare system, a climate that, you know, palliative care is also changing too. That, you know, in the hospital, when we're placing palliative care consults, it's oftentimes so late. You know, like when patients have like maybe one or two weeks to live. Or, you know, in the outpatient setting, if someone is on hospice, you know, the patient's oftentimes visited by a hospice nurse, but not the doctor. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as in the case of Jenny, um, who after her oncologist said, I don't want Jenny to think I'm abandoning her, he said, it's time for her to go to hospice. So bringing it to consciousness again, Mm -hmm. bringing his unconscious to conscious enabled him to make a better decision. And he called her and said he thought it was time for her to go to hospice. And I remained as her hospice doctor. So I was the person managing her symptoms, talking to her family, all that. And about a week before she died, I made a home visit um, and asked her a question I always ask patients at this stage of their life, which is how are you feeling inside yourself? And I actually expected her to tell me she was thinking about her mother from whom she was estranged. Mm-hmm. Her mother was still alive. And I, I think I had this fantasy that I was going to heal this family, you know, through palliative care intervention. That's not what she said. She said, I don't understand why my oncologist has not called or visited me in all this time since I came on hospice. I thought he really cared about me. So exactly what he was afraid of, abandonment, is what he did. Because he did not know that picking her, picking up the phone and calling her to see how she was doing is all she needed. Right. Mm-hmm. And I got her permission to call him after that visit. I, and I did. I said, Abe, I was in to see Jenny today, and she'd really like to see you. As it happens, his practice was about 10 blocks from where she lives in New York City. And he reacted very angrily. Why? Isn't she home on hospice? There's nothing I can do for her. Think about that. As if the only value he had was deciding which chemotherapy to infuse and how much and when. It's such a sad evaluation of the self. So I said, well, actually, she's really very fond of you and very grateful to you. And she wants to say thank you. And she wants to say goodbye. And he went. went. And they had that conversation. And she died a few days later. And that's the price that doctors pay. Yes. For not getting any training or exposure to taking care of people all the way through. Because the most important thing to her in the last week of her life was that her oncologist hadn't called her. (laughs) I mean, but think about it. He had kept her alive for six years. This was a really important relationship for her. There was a connection. Yes, a very deep connection. And she really trusted him and respected him and thought he felt the same about her, which he did, but he just didn't know how to, how to end. So he taught me a lot. 
when he said, I don't want Jenny to think I'm abandoning her because, because it's not venal. <laughs> it's, it's misguided, misapplied love. Exactly. I feel like our thinking has become a little bit messed up as physicians. Like, you know, when I was a, when I was a first time doctor, when I was a new attending, a patient had died. And I was going to write the patient's uh, wife, uh, you know, a card, you know, since he had just passed. And one of the do the doctors at the facility was saying, don't write the card because you're going to incriminate yourself if you write a her a card, which is so silly in retrospect. But if this is kind of the kind of advice and training that you're getting from your older peers. That's crazy. Yeah. If you, you know, had that card, it would be one of her most cherished possessions. Exactly. Not even forget, not forgetting our humanity and our patients' humanities, you know? Yeah, absolutely right. May I ask you, how do you feel about physician-assisted death? Um, I used to be in favor of it when I was young and arrogant um, because I, I sort of thought that self-determination trumps everything else or is more important than anything else. But as I've gotten older, and in particular in the last few years, watching what we do to people at the border, watching what we do to Black people, watching what we do to Asian people, watching how many lives we think are unworthy of life, I don't think this is a good power to put in the hands of doctors. Doctors are no better than anyone else at deciding whose life is worth living and whose isn't. Exactly. Even like, you know, terminal patients, like that patient you mentioned, she lived for a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I think she yeah. lived for a year and a half in large part because she had really good palliative care. Yeah. Her symptoms were really well managed. Her depression was well managed. Her, you know, her nutrition was well managed. Mm -hmm. Her co infectious complications were well managed, all at home on hospice. She had good quality of life. Right. But she was totally alert until like yeah. she died. Very, very remarkable person who read Greek in the original, and, mm -hmm. you know, a polymath. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It's interesting because, you know, ultimately my podcast is about spirituality. And I spoke with Dr. Christopher Kerr, who's palliative care with Buffalo Hospice. Right. And he talks about end of life as kind of like, you know, with people having end of life experiences or visions or dreams, that it's kind of like a process for people to kind of work things out, things that still need to be reckoned with. And I'm kind of concerned if that's a natural progression and these experiences occur, if we as a doctor give them a pill to end their lives, it's kind of like we're messing up their cycle of life when, you know, their life is not over yet. Right, exactly. Their life is not over yet. And, you know? and the problem, I, I don't know if you saw the piece that I had in JAMA Internal Medicine a couple of months ago called Treatment of Unbearable Suffering. Yes. I did. Slope is real. Um, that that while I will acknowledge that that I might want to have that option myself for the two grams of second all, um, that's not the same thing as saying it's good public policy. When you look at how we treat people that we think are other, of all types, young, babies, you know, 
not to mention old, demented, sick people. Um, well, when you look at the cost to society of taking care of sick people, you make it easy to give them a second old prescription. It's just terrifying. Yeah. You wonder who it's benefiting, you know. Yeah, and that, exactly. So yeah. there was, you know, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, they linked to that article in Canada about that guy with the neurologic disease who needed 24-hour care at home and wanted to go home with 24-hour care and nobody would pay for it. And they offered him physician aid in dying as an alternative. I mean, and he audio taped it. Why, you know, I I don't know why we think that that isn't going to happen right and left when we make it. Yeah. This is what you mentioned in that same article, like what happens in the Netherlands. Like you mentioned in 2016, there were 201 um, physician-assisted death or euthanasia for patients who have mental illness. And dementia. And dementia. Where the request was from the family. And the problem there, of course, is that was totally against the law and against the regulation. Not only that, they they have this bizarre post hoc review process. So they review these cases after the death of the patient mm-hmm. um, as if somehow people aren't going to lie to say that what they did was adherent to guideline course they will. Despite that, the review committee hid the data. They did not report it. The review committee, who is charged with assuring adherence to the guidelines, suppressed the data. Yeah, it's fishy. It's strange. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's it basically says that people will be killed for reasons other than their own preference. Yeah. I thought was what was particularly disturbing was that there was a significant number of deaths not reported. Yeah. From physician assisted death in the Netherlands. Yeah. That's like kind of Well, it isn't it's, it's euthanasia. It's not. Yeah. So the the virtues of physician medical aid in dying is you give the patient a prescription, right? Most people put it away and never take it. The majority yeah. But when you're euthanizing someone, you're holding the syringe. Yeah. And the patient can't change their mind. And they don't want to put off, put out the doctor who has gone out of their way and got the medicine and come to the house. So they do it. Yeah. You know, despite all the changes in medicine and how being a doctor has changed, ultimately we're going against our Hippocratic oath. First, do no harm. Yeah. I think we have to define what treatment is, but killing is not part of the, you know, the Hippocratic oath. No, it's not. Accompanying is. Yeah. And relieving suffering, you know, but not. Yeah. And I think, as you said earlier in our conversation, how we're sort of trained to see death as the ultimate failure rather than the natural process of all living things, trees, plants, ants, puppies, people, this is the natural process. And the, 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 the fact that we've let ourselves believe that it's our job to put a stop to that natural process and that if we don't do it, we've failed, 
you know, it's a fantasy in Oregon and it's, and it is embedded in the training. Yeah. It's kind of like acting like God in the wrong way, you know, like. (laughs) Because death, a person who isn't getting better and is going to die is a reproach to the doctor. You failed. I'm done. And so what do you want to do when you're confronted with that? Get rid of it. Because living with the fact that you can't make it better is too painful. Yeah. It's a kind of, it's a matter of the ego and our ego should not get in the way of caring for someone. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation, Dr. Maya. It was so thought provoking. Thank you so much. And I hope a lot of people learn from it as well. Well, it's a pleasure and I'm glad you are continuing to make such a thoughtful contribution to the practice of medicine. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends.